All right, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19? As we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday mornings, we come to chapter 19. This morning, we want to pick it up in verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you realize that the section that preceded this was a section where Jesus was teaching on divorce. And to me, it's no mistake that the Holy Spirit inserts now this little section which deals with the worth of a child in the eyes of God. Because when we talk about divorce, well, children are always directly affected by the divorce of their parents. In fact, they're really the innocent victims of divorce. And I'll tell you what, there's more to this than just the practical side of it, the fighting and bickering over money and various other things. When we looked at that study a couple weeks ago, we saw how that Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And then right after that, he begins in chapter 6 to talk about spiritual warfare. And he says that, you know, we're not really fighting against human beings. We're really fighting against principalities and powers. In other words, evil spirits and forces in the spirit realm. They are the real enemy. They are the ones that we are really battling against. And it's interesting that in that passage, right after Paul talked about marriage, he talked about spiritual warfare. What Paul was trying to communicate to us indirectly, or at least the Holy Spirit was, was that we can expect our marriages to be targeted by the devil more than anything else. The devil knows that the building block of a church and of a society is marriage and family. Destroy marriage, you destroy families. And that's why Satan is really targeting marriages primarily. But listen to me, he's not just unleashing an onslaught against husbands and wives in marriages, that's true. But he's also out to destroy the children, especially the children of Christian parents, kids growing up in Christian homes. Why them particularly? Because they are the next generation of those who will carry forth the gospel into this world. And so we see there's a lot more going on here than just the practical side of it. Don't discount the spiritual element in your struggles in your marriages and in your families. Now, in these verses, Jesus directly affirms the worth of children and indirectly the responsibility of their parents to train them up in the knowledge of God. I'm going to divide this section into just three simple points. The parents' inclination, the disciples' irritation, and finally, Jesus' affirmation. First of all, the parents' inclination. Verse 13, Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. It seems that parents were inclined to bring their children to Jesus, to have him lay hands on them and pray over them. Now, both Mark and Luke record this incident and they both use the imperfect tense in the Greek, which should be translated, and these parents kept bringing their children to Jesus. It was an ongoing thing, all right? Everywhere he went, parents kept bringing their children to Jesus to have him pray over them 
and bless them. It was something that he dealt with everywhere he went. Why? Because word had gotten out, this prophet, and typically prophets of God, were not necessarily very um, sensitive to children. They were kind of rough guys, because they had rough ministries. But here was a prophet from Nazareth, who we know was more than a prophet, who loved kids. Kids loved to be around him. And the parents picked up on that and brought their children to Jesus. In fact, the Greek word for children there is paideia. It's a Greek word that means very young children, from infancy through maybe three or four years of age. Little ones. Something interesting that I discovered as I studied this in Luke's gospel, he uses the masculine pronoun for these parents, indicating that it was the fathers who kept bringing their small children to Jesus for him to bless them. Now, culturally, that was not unusual. Because in that culture, from what I've been able to understand and study, it was uh, customary for a father, a Jewish father, to take his infant child and bring the child to the synagogue and there pray for the child himself and then hand the child over to the elders who would each take the child, pray over the child, taking turns, asking God to bless this young life, to use the child for his glory, etc., now, obviously, I'm sure there were moms that brought their kids to Jesus too. And everyone in this room would agree, I'm, I'm sure, that it's the responsibility of both fathers and mothers to raise their children in the ways of the Lord. But I think it's interesting how Luke points out it was the fathers primarily who were bringing their children to Jesus. And I do think as leaders of our families, it's especially the responsibility of fathers to take the lead in the spiritual development of the children. Unfortunately, in our culture today, too many Christian fathers delegate their responsibility in this matter to their wives, forgetting the admonition by Paul in Ephesians 6, verse 4, where he said, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Listen. More than a few dads, and I've talked to some, but more than a few dads in our society end up with major regrets for spending too much time at work or in other activities rather than spending more time with their children, especially when their children were young. In fact, one Christian father expressed his regrets this way. Let me read to you what he said. Looking back over his life, he said, my family's all grown and the kids are all gone. But if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more even to the littlest child. I would be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family instead of focusing on them I focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow upon them more praise. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had it to do all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God, end quote. And that's one father looking back with regrets of the things he should have done 
Now, there's a lot of dads in this room. Your kids are still small. And uh, I encourage you not to come to a place in your life where you're looking back regretting that you should have done things differently. Now is the time to make changes. And by the way, it's easy to bring your child to a pastor and say, can you lay your hands on this child and pray for them as these parents did, primarily these fathers with their kids? That's not that hard to do. It's much rougher than to, after you have a pastor or an elder of a church lay hands on your child like we do at baby dedications, right? I mean, if, if a parent thinks that that's the end of it right there, I'm going to bring my child to church and let the pastors, you know, pray over this child, dedicating that child to the Lord. I always tell parents before we do that, I say, look, you realize that by dedicating your child to the Lord, I'm just really praying for you to do what God is calling you to do as a parent. This is more about your responsibility than a quick prayer over your child. So it's easy to have somebody pray over your little one. It's a lot harder as a parent to raise them every day in the ways of God. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So first of all, the parents' inclination. Secondly, the disciples' irritation. I love these guys, okay? Um, you know, they're only trying to protect Jesus, but, but it, their hearts are revealed here. Again, verse 13, little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuke them. They rebuke these parents. Now, remember I told you in the Greek, it's in the imperfect tense. So these parents kept bringing their children to Jesus to be prayed over. Same is true with how the disciples rebuked them, imperfect tense. Which means that the more parents kept bringing their children to Jesus, the more the disciples kept rebuking and trying to keep them from doing so. In fact, that Greek word rebuking carries with it, it could carry with it the idea of threats. These guys were actually threatening these parents. Stop bringing your kids to Jesus. Now, we don't want to tell you again, or otherwise it's going to be whatever. I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, they were not happy about these parents constantly bringing their kids to Jesus. Why was that? Well, I think the reaction of irritation was because, culturally speaking, children were not really valued back then. They were not really valued back then. And I think the disciples thought, you know, Jesus has got a lot more important things to do than to waste time praying over all these kids, all right? I think that's where they were coming from. They just felt like he was too busy with other more important things, like what? Well, healing people and casting demons out. You're saying that's not important? I definitely think that's important. But they were missing the point. They were missing the point. There is nothing more important than the next generation. And I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't feel this way. I'm so thankful he didn't say to these parents, get out of here. Don't you know who I am? Peter, will you get these kids out of here? I'm conducting an important meeting. I don't have time for these children. No, Jesus did not think these little children were unimportant or unworthy of his time. And so as the disciples rebuked the parents, Jesus rebuked his disciples, right? He said in verse 14, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. In the Greek, here's what Jesus actually said. Let the children alone right now, and stop trying to keep them from coming to me. You know, I have to stop and just interject something, because every once in a while, if you come to our church for any length of time, you realize that 
We want all the children in the Sunday school class. We want all the kids in the Sunday school class so they can learn on their level, which frees you guys up as parents to learn on your level without distraction, right? And, and every once in a while, we'll have a parent who will interpret that as being anti-family in some way. And they will say, you know, we come to church as a family. We want to be in church and sit together as a family. And I'm like, well, I respect where you're coming from, but you can be a family all week long. We're not trying to divide your family. Just We're asking you for one hour, okay? When you come to church, we ask you to understand that, you know, in our Sunday school classes, we have teachers that love kids, that have been trained in how to teach the kids. We have purchased curriculum that is designed to teach the kids on their level so that they can connect with Jesus and understand him and grow in their relationship with him while you then can can you bring your kids into the sanctuary and they're going to listen to me are you kidding me i can barely keep your attention as adults those, those kids aren't gonna they're gonna grow up thinking church is a big snore because they listen to me all those years and when they get to be 15 16 years old they say i'm out of here man i'm done with church so when parents tell me, you know, Jesus said, don't, you know, forbid the little children from coming to me as if he's here in the sanctuary, which I believe he is. I always turn it around and say, look, Jesus is in the Sunday school class. He wants to teach your kids on their level so he can really connect with them. You're keeping them from going to Jesus by wanting them here with you. I just throw that in there a little something. Just, that doesn't count for my time either, by the way. But... Uh, um, a little, little axe to grind there, but all right, I, I'm over it now. But you know, look, the disciples thought they were really protecting Jesus from these, you know, terrible imposition of these children. You know, and Jesus was very patient with his disciples. These guys were not spiritual giants, and they really kind of blew it a lot of times. But as you read the Gospels, the Lord only got upset with them, you know, maybe three or four times in his whole ministry. And here's one of those times. He was very upset with them because of their attitude. This comes through very clearly in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 14, where we read, but Jesus saw what they were doing, trying to keep the kids from coming to him. And he was, listen, greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus was upset with his disciples for a couple of reasons over this. Number one, apparently the disciples didn't realize how much of a blessing from God children really are. And number two, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like little children. Therefore, these kids become an object lesson. Now, here, let's take the second one first. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like little children. We're not going to spend much time on this because as we studied Matthew 18, the first four verses. We saw at that time that Jesus said that the quality that these little children possess, toddlers now, that is essential for anyone who wants to become a member of God's kingdom is humility. Humility. Humility doesn't hold its head high. It bows its head low. And that's the point Jesus was making. To enter into God's kingdom, you can't come with your head held high, your shoulders back, all proud. God's blessed to get you. 
in his kingdom. You have to realize you are deserving of nothing that God is offering. That everything he offers, especially the invitation to become a member of his kingdom, one of his kids, is a gift, a free gift that you receive by faith, but it's a gift of his grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And it's not until a person recognizes that, you know what? The only way I can be a member of God's kingdom is if I realize I don't deserve anything. I am not worthy of it in the slightest degree. And I come not with head held high, but bent low. As I humbly approach him and say, thank you, Lord. And I receive that gift by faith. That's the point. Because as James tells us, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Anybody who thinks that they deserve heaven will never enter into heaven. And that's the one thing about little kids, they have this humility that we adults need to understand and learn from. In fact, Jesus went on to say in Matthew 18 that humility was not only the quality that allowed you to enter into God's kingdom, of course, along with receiving Christ, But it's also the quality once you are a member of the kingdom on this earth, as you continue to walk in humility, which says, you are more important to me than I am. As you continue to walk in that humility and be as Jesus was a servant to all, that will determine how great you become in the kingdom of heaven someday. Even as Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child, holding a toddler in his arms, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus was also upset with his disciples because the disciples didn't realize how much of a blessing children really were and how much God values these little ones. In fact, the psalmist said it in Psalm 127, verse 3, when he said, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Listen to that again. Whenever God blesses a family, a couple with children, that is a great blessing. That is a great privilege. Today, I'm sorry to say, the devil, who is the God of this world, has turned everything around, hasn't he? And by the way, whatever the world thinks is great, God thinks is garbage. As Jesus put it, Whatever is highly esteemed in the eyes of man is an abomination in the sight of God. And look at how the world is looking at children today. Look at how the world sees in general now, on the unbelieving world. Our country, we'll say in particular. Children are no longer a blessing. In many regards, they're an imposition. Many young couples have been sterilized because they don't want kids at all. Many others have them and neglect them. Or they get pregnant and abort these children. This is a great tragedy and a great travesty. We have to realize that these kids are very precious in the sight of God. And as the devil has worked in this country, you know how twisted it's gotten? Let me just share this with you. Do you realize that there are certain insects and small rodents that are on the endangered species list? And if you were to accidentally or deliberately kill one of these little insects or these little creatures and you were reported and they found out that you did this, you could be fined, I don't know, 
a couple of grand up to like $10,000 or something. I don't know. It's, it's substantial. The government will penalize you for killing certain insects, rodents, or things like that, little creatures that are on the endangered species list. If you want to abort your own child, they will pay you to do that. That's how twisted this country has become. Children are no longer a blessing from God. That's the world. As Christians, we must never think that way. It's such an important thing. God knows that the future of any nation depends on the importance society in general and parents in particular place on the children who will become the next generation of adults and uh, parents and leaders. God understood that the re- you, you had better value children because they are your future as a nation. And that's why God said in his law, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road and when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is God's priority in the home. That God's truth about himself from his word is passed from the parents to the children. And then, of course, as those children grow and become parents themselves, they then pass those things on to their kids. That is how a nation is perpetuated. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And God says, if you're going to continue in my blessings, you have to understand you have got to live what I have taught you as parents and then pass it along to your children that they might grow with the knowledge of me as well that they might then pass it along to their children. Listen, God said it's done in three primary ways in this passage. First of all, through speech. Verse 7, you shall teach your children diligently and talk about my commandments. Look, communicating to our children through our words is very important. In fact, the Lord goes on through Moses to actually... um, qualify how this is done he said look when you sit in your house when you walk by the way when you lie down when you rise up in other words all throughout your day you're to be looking for teachable moments opportunities to teach your children about god and it's not just you know by opening the bible it's by everyday events you know kids are very inquisitive aren't they little ones and they'll come to you and ask all kinds of questions you know mommy daddy why is the sky blue in the grass green? Now, dads, if you're watching the ball game, your tendency is to say, uh, beat it, kid. I'm watching the game. You know, I don't know why the sky is blue and the grass is green. And I don't really care right now. The bears are down by three. You know, forget the bears. Okay, guys? Forget the bears. All right? The bears. Who cares about the bears? I'm more concerned about the kids, all right? Daddy, why is the sky blue and the grass green? Why did God make them that way? Son, I don't know. But you know what? Let's go on the internet. You can, we'll Google it. 
You can find it. Well, YouTube it. Certainly somebody has told us why the sky is blue and the grass is green. Or why God made this little creature this way and so on. Teachable moments, right? Or mom, dad, why is that other kid at school picking on me? I've never done anything wrong to them. Why are they so mean to me? Well, son, it gets into what the Bible says about those born into this world. People born into this world are born with a fallen nature and it shows itself up in the way they treat others and how they hurt people and say mean things. Now, the Bible says we're to love them. They're not our enemies. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And we are to pray for them, that God would release them, that God would open their eyes and bring them to Jesus. So let's pray for that child at school and so on. You know, there's all kinds of ways you can teach your kids about the Lord verbally. But I'll tell you what, there's another one that's very powerful, and that's not only teach them God's laws and God's character in speech, but in silence. In silence. Verse 8 of Deuteronomy 6. And you shall bind God's word as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, what God was saying when he said this was he was, he was not speaking literally. He was speaking figuratively. He said, I want you to bind my word on your hands. What does that mean? Everything you do should be consistent with what God has said. You should never do steal, hurt anybody. Your hands should be used to glorify God. Bind God's word on your forehead. What does that mean? Let it govern the way you think. Let it govern. Now, the Jews took this literally and came up with the practice of attaching phylacteries on their hands and foreheads. A phylactery was a leather box, and they would put scriptures in there, and then they would literally tie it to their forearm with the phylactery on their hand, and they would tie one to their forehead, literally binding the word to their foreheads and hands. And of course, the Pharisees took this to the extreme, as they often did, to show people how spiritual they were. They enlarged their phylacters. Remember Jesus said that Matthew 23. He condemned them because they walked around with these gigantic phylacteries, like big Kleenex box, hanging off their head to show people how spiritual they were. Look at me. Look at how big this phylactery is. Wow, that's impressive. Of course, you're out there foreclosing on widows' houses and so on and so forth. But, you know, hey, you got a big phylactery hanging off your head. You're pretty spiritual. And what God was really saying is, look, I want you to teach your children about me by the way you live. You don't have to say a word. This is one of the most powerful ways to teach our kids because most of what our kids learn about God is caught, not taught. It's caught, not taught. They will catch it by looking at our lives. Kids aren't stupid. Kids aren't stupid. They're watching us, guys. They are watching us, and they know when we come to church, we put on the old spiritual feel and all smiles and praise the Lord and talking all holy and righteous. Then on the way home, we're cussing some gout that cut us off or come home, we're fighting and with our spouses and we're watching junk on TV and the kids are taking all this in going, you know, my mom and dad went to church and they talked the good talk, but you know what? I didn't see them live for the Lord in their lives. And so, you know what? I just think it's all hypocrisy. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. So you teach your kids in speech and silence and thirdly in surroundings. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God wanted them to fill their homes with God's word. 
Now, I don't have a problem with you literally doing that. I think it's wonderful walking into a Christian home and seeing the Word of God written on, uh, on plaques or in pictures up on the walls. I think that's wonderful. There's no problem with that. As long as that's not the extent of it, right? As long as that's not the only way you're, you're filling your home with God's Word. Again, it's to be a way of life. And I think today, what kind of images, what kind of things are we filling our homes with? Are they really consistent with the Word of God and what God teaches? You know, today, because of television and the Internet, you can fill your home with all kinds of images on the TV and movies and um, the Internet and these video games. Many of them are just absolutely demonic. I hope none of you have those in your homes for your children. But look at the images. And a lot of times parents will be gone when their kids come home from school and there's no filters on the computers. They get on there and they're clicking around and go anywhere they want. I mean, it's like dropping your kid off in the worst part of the city and saying, hey, have a great time and driving away. You're, you're, you're handing your child to the devil and saying, here you go. I mean, and some Christian parents, I mean, you know, they're letting their kids watch these uh, vampire movies and Walking Dead and Zombie This and Ghost That and Demon Whatever. And, 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 you, and you ask them about it, and they go, well, oh, it's just harmless entertainment. It, it doesn't look harmless to me. It looks evil. And you don't want to pour that junk into your kids' minds. God says, look, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And it starts with when you're a child. Spiritual warfare at its core is, is a battle for control of our thinking. And it starts with our children. That's why the devil is so, he's pulling out all the stops and is targeting our kids through the media, even social media, all right? But I'm talking the music, uh, the uh, video games, the, the MTV, and all that stuff is designed by the God of this world to pump into our children's minds a godless, anti-Christ, anti-Bible philosophy of living that will take them away from God the older they get. Very important that we monitor what our children are, that our homes are a safe zone, not a toxic waste dump for this garbage. I mean, this was so important, guys, that parents teach their children about him faithfully, filling their, their homes with godliness that God included it in his law and said, parents, it's your responsibility to diligently teach your children about me. Teach them my word. When you rise up, when you lie down, as you walk on, uh, uh, by the road and so on, you're constantly teaching them about me so that they can grow as godly individuals. And when they have kids, they can pass that information on to their children so that every generation will know me, obey me, and be blessed by me. That's how a nation is, a godly nation is perpetuated. Turn to Psalm 78. I'll show you how the psalmist put this. Psalm 78, starting in verse 5. Speaking about the Lord, how he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them. And they in turn will teach their own children. Verse 7. So each generation should, should set its hope anew on God 
not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. You want to reach a child for the Lord, one of your children for the Lord, start young. Start young. You don't wait till they are 17 or 18 years old to say, okay, now you're old enough, go pick a church and decide what you want to believe about God. That's why God gave children to parents, for us to teach them his ways. You see, guys, the darkness of the devil's lies, which is what this world is filled with, the only thing strong enough to combat that is the power and the light of God's truth. That's the only thing. We have to lay a godly foundation for our kids. If we are not proactive in teaching them about God when they're young so that a godly spiritual foundation is laid in their lives that they can build their lives upon when they get out into the world, and they're going to get out into the world one way or another, whether your homeschooling will come to an end, and I applaud homeschooling, I think it's wonderful, but eventually those kids are going to have to get out into the world. I can't tell you this, the statistics about kids who were homeschooled through high school go to college and lose their faith because you have to, you have to really be proactive. Let me just give you this uh, in the way of statistics. Do you realize that a child from age 5 to age 18 will spend roughly 15,000 hours in usually public schools, secular schools, and let me just say this, there are many Christians in the secular or public school system, and I thank God for you guys. If we have some of you here, God bless you. I, I wish God would give us more, all right? But a lot of these teachers, they mean well, but they are not believers, and they are teaching their ki the kids in their classrooms what the state mandates. And the state is mandating that they teach them about homosexuality and its virtues and other things that we would disagree with. From the ages of 5 to 18, they're going to spend roughly 15,000 hours in a classroom being indoctrinated with secular humanistic philosophies and roughly 17,000 hours watching TV, which the God of this world has orchestrated to grab hold of their thinking and pull them away from God. You say, oh, but my kids go to Sunday school. Praise the Lord. If you are faithful in bringing your kids to Sunday school, to church, 50 weeks out of the year, two weeks for vacation, all right, 50 weeks out of the year, if you bring your child faithfully to church from the ages of 5 to 18, they will spend 650 hours in Sunday school. That is hardly a match for 32,000 hours of indoctrination between school and TV. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying it's not enough. It's not enough. It has to be supplemented by what's going on in the home. We appreciate you trusting us with your children for an hour. We do our best. We can only do so much. We need you guys to understand what happens here at church is just a little icing on the old cupcake uh, of their lives. You guys are the substance in what you're teaching them throughout the week. And basically, more importantly, how you're living for the Lord. But because of all this worldly indoctrination, it's no wonder that children are growing up today, even Christian kids, with no heart for God many times. 
Again, as parents, we must train them at home throughout the week in the things of God. Again, by first being an example and then taking the word and teaching them from the word, but then living it ourselves as well. All right, let's wind this down. Most of you have heard of Dr. Howard Hendricks, a wonderful Christian man. He kind of summarized or set forth what he calls pointers for parents, okay, in a book he wrote, which is really some principles for godly parenting. He talks about the seven pointers for parents. I'll just read these to you. I won't spend much time on these. You can get the book if you'd like to, to go into this in detail. First of all, Dr. Hendricks says, provide an atmosphere in the home that builds warm, close, personal relationships. He said, make sure the home is a place of belonging and acceptance. That means spending time with your children so that they know you and you know them. Very important. Of course, today the mentality is, well, I can't spend much time with my kids, so what I spend is quality time. I'm not sure what that means. I'm really not sure what that means, okay? Because to me, I don't think you can spend quality time with your kids without at least trying to spend a quantity of time with your kids. I think in some cases it's just more of an excuse for not spending enough time with our kids. Number two, be a good example to your children, he says. He goes on to say your faith and values will, be, will more likely uh, be caught by your kids than taught to your kids. Don't be afraid to admit mistakes. Kids need to see that you are human and big enough to accept grace and forgiveness then they will grow up into adults who can forgive and accept forgiveness as well. Number three, allow gradual emancipation from the apron strings of parental authority. I love it. Begin early to feed them responsibility a little at a time. Evaluate the results and adjust their freedom according to their ability to handle it. That's very important. You know, if a child shows that they're responsible, don't keep treating them like they're irresponsible. Let them have a little more freedom. It encourages them to want to become, you know, better even at handling responsibility. Number four, when children need guidance and counsel, provide a relaxed, informal setting. As opposed to, you know, the parent who immediately hits the panic button and explodes before the child has got two words out. Hendricks said, spend time building a warm relationship with your child so that he or she will be more willing to accept your counsel. Now, let me just say this. I am not telling you to be a friend to your child, okay? Too many parents are trying to be friends to their kids. Your kids don't need another friend. They have plenty of those. They need a parent. And as parents, we have to be authoritarian figures. That doesn't mean that you're, uh, that you're a dictator. That doesn't mean that when the kids have a problem that they don't feel they can come and talk to you. Certainly they should. That's what Hendricks is saying. You know, when, you, when the kids mess up, if they know they can come to you and confess it to you without you getting crazy, I'm not saying there's not consequences. I'm just saying you're yelling and screaming and whatever else. They're more inclined to then come to you. That's what he's talking about here. Number five, he says set limits. Children want and need the security of boundaries and restrictions. But discipline your children only in a context of love. He says your children will not accept your limits unless they know that they are loved and you tell them that they are loved not only with words but more importantly with your time, attention, and general interest. Number six, apply the law of natural consequences as they grow up. 
He said, as your children grow in their ability to make decisions, let them decide. But also let them live with the results of their decisions. If we make all the decisions for them, they will lose confidence in their own ability to make decisions. If we bail them out and shield them from the consequences of their, their decisions, they will grow up with an irresponsible attitude, expecting never to have to deal with consequences. In some cases, it's healthy for children to make mistakes and accept the consequences as long as they are not consequences that will cause serious or lifelong harm. I mean, use common sense. You don't let a child decide to do something that might wind up causing some severe lifelong injury. Like this couple in California that decided to let their 14-year-old sail around the world in a boat alone. And the kid almost got killed a couple of times. And I'm thinking, what is? what are you thinking? Oh, but they're very responsible. They've been sailing since they were five. Yeah, but they're 14. I'm not even trying to do that legally. Anyway, um, a lot of axes to grind today. I'm sorry. Uh, number seven. Number seven. Most importantly, he said, surround your children with a fortress of prayer. Very important. He said, trust the Spirit of God to care for them Cover for your inevitable occasional mistakes and bring your children to a place of faith and maturity. Look, parenting is hard work if it's done right. But listen, no work, no work is more important to your family or for society than raising godly children. I, cannot, I don't care what the world says. The world is clueless. I don't care what the world says about you investing your life in your kids. I'm talking about what God has said. There is no greater work. There is no more important work than raising godly children. The future survival of society depends on how these kids grow up. Look at our country. Look where we are. Look, I'd like to end this morning by passing along, you know, to reinforce what I've just said. I'd like to end by passing along the results of a study that was done several years ago. Two families were studied from the state of New York. In New York, uh, they studied these two families very carefully. One was the family of a man named Max Jukes, and the other was the family of Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan preacher and pastor. And the thing they discovered in this study was remarkable, that like beget likes. Or, to put it biblically, what you sow, you're going to reap. Let me read this to you, and we'll close. The study said that Max Jukes lived in New York. He did not believe in Christ or in Christian training, and he married an unbelieving woman who lacked character like him. He refused to take his children to church even when they asked him to take them. He has had 1,026 descendants. 300 were sent to prison for an average term of 13 years each, seven of them for murder. 190 were public prostitutes, 680 were admitted alcoholics, bums, and petty thieves. His family thus far has cost the state of New York about $1.5 million. They have made no contribution to society that is of any benefit. Jonathan Edwards lived in the same state at the same time as Jukes. He loved the Lord and married a woman like, of like character and saw that his children were in church every Sunday as he served the Lord to the best of his ability. He has had 929 descendants. 
Of these, 300 became clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors. Over 100 became college professors. Over 100 became attorneys, 30 of them judges. 60 of them became physicians. Over 60 became authors of good classic books. 14 became presidents of universities. Five were elected to the House of Representatives, two to the Senate, and one served our country as vice president. His family never cost the state one cent, but has contributed immeasurably to the life of plenty in this land today. Now, folks, if you don't think how you raise your kids and how you teach them faithfully God's word, that that really doesn't matter all that much, think again. Because a real wise guy, Solomon, reminded all of us in Proverbs 22, verse 6, when he said, Train up a child in the way that he or she should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There is no greater calling than raising your children in the eyes of God in a godly way. Uh, The world says climb the corporate ladder. Women, you're throwing your life away if you just want to be moms at home. God says there is no greater calling because how you raise those kids will not only affect their eternity, it will affect, affect the future of society. May God give us the grace to understand the worth of a child. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. And Father, we are living in a culture that is anti-children. Oh, they claim they're not, but Lord, it's obvious they are. And yet, Lord, with your people, it must never be so. Give us grace, Lord, not to get sucked into the cultural mindset that children are an imposition, an irritation, that they drain resources away from us in doing what we want to do, going where we want to go, having what we want to own. Lord, forgive us for being selfish in this regard. Give us grace to focus on our kids and to diligently teach them about you. That when they grow, Lord, they will become godly adults, godly parents, will pass along the knowledge of you to their kids. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and grace in bringing us to you. We ask you, Lord, for the lives of our children, that each of them would come to know you, Lord, radically, that they would be saved, that they would serve you with all their hearts, that they would go on to be productive members of society, being a light in this dark world. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.